Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag your mind Good evening, everyone. I'm Rick Walker. Welcome back to the Maverick News Channel. Thank you, everyone, for joining me here again tonight. Welcome back, Maverick family and new viewers from all over the world. Um, we have a special broadcast tonight, a very special guest joining us. But uh, I know that, you know, we, we are trying to bring you the news every night. So I'm just going to very quickly say that there was a gunman in Belgium, in, in the Belgian capital city of Brussels today, who uh, apparently has killed at least two Swedish nationals. I think all this stuff is, uh, you know, related to the war in Israel with Hamas. Uh, Justin Trudeau today, I'm just looking at my, my news feed coming in from the wires here. And uh, the other prime ministers asking Hamas to free all of the hostages they have immediately. Um, we can get in maybe some of that stuff later in the broadcast if there's time. But really tonight, um, we I, wa I want to devote as much time as is necessary to the subject of the Holodomor. And joining us will be Marta Baziak of the Holodomor Research and Education Center, which is based uh, in Canada. And uh, we're going to explore this because it has been a topic of discussion uh, over the last couple of weeks here, as I, I happen to mention it one night, it is related historically to everything going on today. It's an important subject. Some people have different views, different views on all of this. And I wanted to bring in an expert to get you as close to the truth as we possibly can, as is always the case here. So stay with me. We'll be right back with Marta. And uh, maybe some of the news uh, later on in the broadcast as well. But this, this is an important subject. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The, the world, world is watching. Marta, very nice to meet you finally. Nice to meet you as well, Rick. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Oh, pretty, pretty. I, I say bazook. 
Okay, yeah. I appreciate that. Sorry, I'm sorry I mispronounced it. I try to be not as at all. I want you to school. I don't. Did you have bazooka Joe bubble gum in Canada? I grew up <laughs> in New Jersey. That's how people knew me. Oh my! Well, I'm so grateful for you joining us on the program tonight. You are with the Holodomor Research and Education Center. Can you explain to folks what that is? Sure. So we were founded about ten years ago now. And our mandate is to study this famine, the Holodomor, that happened in 1932-33. So to research it, to educate the public about it, and to the extent possible, to make sure it's taught in schools. And we are part of the University of Alberta. There is a center there called the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. So we're a project of that center. Okay. So I just happened to mention this a couple of weeks ago. Boy, oh boy. Um, you know, it, it set off some fireworks in the chat. And uh, and I received, you know, messages from people. It, 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 I, I, wow, did it, did it touch a nerve with some people? <laughs> um, and and I, I was challenged to a debate. And I thought, I, I'm not an expert. I just know what I know. Um, I've met survivors myself over the years working as a journalist. But I don't consider myself an expert on very much in life. So I wanted to bring someone like yourself on to discuss this because I didn't want to screw up the information. I want people to get the right, the right stuff, not propaganda, not, uh, not misdirection, not mistakes that I might make. Um, so I'm so grateful for you joining us. Um, where do we begin? I, I guess this is a famine. That, that took place in 1932-33 in Ukraine. And what, what was the cause of this famine in those years? The famine in 1932-33 happened because at the most basic, the peasant farmers in Ukraine had all their grain taken from them. And then when all their grain was taken from them, Brigades went house to house taking all foodstuffs. Now you take a step back, why, why was that happening? Um, many of your viewers probably know about collectivization. When the Soviet Union, uh, in, in 1928, they launched on their first five-year plan. It was a radical plan to completely change society. So they were going to industrialize and they were going to make these individual peasant farmers who had their own plots of land, who were growing their own food, they were going to be forced to be on these collectives, which which meant their property would be taken, their, you know, your horses would now be part of the collective, your cows, you might be allowed to keep one, and uh, your land would be taken. So the Ukrainian farmers resisted this uh, vociferously. They uh, fought it tooth and nail, and they were seen as enemies of the this early Soviet state because they did not, they were not on board with becoming just like factory workers, laborers on the collective. They wanted to have their own farms. Mm -hmm. So in that period of time when collectivization was, when they were forcing, and you can imagine the violence it would take to force people to collectivize, uh, there was a lot of chaos. And so famine conditions began at that point that there was chaos and a breakdown into systems that had worked for generations. 
But then that wasn't the famine yet. That was the ground that, that set the stage. What happened then when the peasant farmers were resisting uh, collectivization, it became clear to Stalin and his, his Kremlin circle that these people needed to be brought in line and be uh, taught a lesson. So the famine broke the backbone of the Ukrainian peasantry and it ended the resistance to Soviet rule and to collectivization. And indeed, Stalin really declared war on the kulaks, which were the peasant farm owners of the time. And you can find direct references to this in Stalin's speeches, which I have seen in the past. And, you know, to refresh my memory, I went back and I actually did look up some of his speeches that I was aware of, not an expert in, but he actually discusses the liquidation, his words, the liquidation of the Kulak class. How did he, what did he mean by that? When collectivization began and the more successful farmers in any given village, you can imagine they were also often the village leaders. They were looked up to, they were ambitious. But being a successful farmer might mean you had, I don't know, three cows and a metal roof. It, it, right. These were not fabulously wealthy people. It could mean you had enough money to hire one worker to help you bring in the harvest. That they, would, had, they had a family farm with maybe some hired help. That's right. These people were demonized by the Soviet Union as uh, as parasites who were, uh, as you said, a class that deserved to be destroyed, that needed to be destroyed. And over time, it Greed, became greedy capitalist farmers. Exactly. And it became an all purpose term to demonize any enemy of the system. So by the end, any farmer could be called a kulak. And these people, hundreds of thousands of kulak, supposed kulaks and their families, were sent to Siberia, uh, dispossessed of their homes and shipped off to shipped off to Siberia, which you can imagine had a, a pretty chilling effect on other people in the village. If you see um, your neighbor and uh, the, be the, the better off people, resistance uh, comes to an end pretty fast. Right. So... There was even a, you know, there were posters made. There was a um, public relations campaign, if you will, or propaganda uh, of the day where Stalin and the Communist Party were portraying the family farm owners in Ukraine as, like, like I said, greedy capitalist farmers who were hiding the, 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 the grain and hiding their food because they were greedy. They didn't want to share it. Um, and you see this everywhere uh, when a genocide or a, atrocities are going, are going to be conducted by one group against another. The effort to use propaganda to demonize a certain group. So you had fanatic city workers who were convinced they were doing the right thing, that these people, they'd been told this, there had been a campaign, as you say. They'd been hearing day in and day out that these are our enemies. They're holding back progress. They're holding back the creation of this Soviet workers' paradise utopia. And uh, they went in and arrested these people, took their food, uh, kicked their families out in the winter into the cold right outside their homes. And that's that's the result of, of a very serious propaganda campaign that seems to go along with most genocides. 
And just to, to, to rewind just a little bit so people can understand why this collectivization of the farms took place, as I understand the story, and please correct me if I'm not getting this, this right. At the time, Stalin knew that they needed to modernize their economy, industrialize it. He needed to capitalize that. And by capitalize, I mean he needed loans from other countries in order to do it. And the ruble at the time wasn't worth anything. He couldn't get credit. So he needed a commodity, something that he could sell on the open market, international markets, in order to finance the industrialization of his society to modernize Russia's economy. Ukraine, the breadbasket of Europe rich farmland so if i understand things correctly in you know from history he went in collectivized the farms nationalized them essentially took ownership he took the farms away from the well peasant farm owners because they weren't rich they just managed to scrape together enough to have a small parcel of land because there was an old saying back in those days if i remember right Give me a small piece of land and I will never starve. It's a, a, a Ukrainian thing. Um, so he took he took the farms. He, he confiscated the property, then imposed quotas on the farmers and said, you must produce this much or there will be penalties. And uh, and then proceeded to confiscate all of the grain in order to sell it as capital and convert that into other currencies so that he could buy collectively any kind of machinery necessary to industrialize the economy, industrialize the cities, and even industrialize and mechanize agricultural production by purchasing things like tractors. Is that about right? I don't think I could have said it much better. I would, I would just add that Ukrainians themselves called it a second serfdom. And you were saying that these weren't wealthy people. Ukrainians had been under the yoke of serfdom, which is, it's not exactly like slavery, but very much so. You could be sold. You had to work for a particular landowner. They had been serfs themselves. So they it's not like they had generations of people becoming fabulously wealthy. They had, in their historic memory, been serfs. And now they had their own plots of land, and they were fighting tooth and nail not to give them up. Uh, so I think that the industrialization was the, it was an end in itself that they wanted to sell the grain on the international market to finance industrialization. And these were huge uh, projects they had, but also uh, any kind of individualism is frowned on in that system. And these peasant farmers just had way too much freedom and buying, selling at the market, that wasn't acceptable for people to have that kind of, that that level of individual freedom. Yes. So here you are, you've, you've worked your fingers to the bone all your life, your whole family has over generations to get what you have. You're just a small farm owner. And then you have this collectivist government, this communist government that comes along and says, nope, it's it's all ours now. So you take the production incentives, the market incentives out of production, which throws all kinds of crazy market signals out there. Um, 
it de-incentivizes de work, makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the farm owners to pay their, their hired hands. Anything that is produced goes to the state. They're only going to be permitted to have so much, you know, an allowance, essentially. And if they don't meet their quotas, they'll be penalized. And, and some of those punishments were brutal because Stalin had, for years prior to that, um, expressed his concern over the kulaks, the farm owners, for a long time. And it, and it was even before 1932 that he had essentially uh, expressed his desire to liquidate the kulak class. So this was uh, something that was pretty deep-seated. Any, anything else you can add with regard to any of that before we move on? Just, I would say, the considering how dependent the the authorities were and, and the state was on the farmers how it's amazing how much disdain or hatred they had for this class of people and they so much thought in class terms uh, mm -hmm. you know and if you were the son of a kulak you're a kulak it was hard for you to even break out of this label that you had been given they did not let people in the villages have passports you weren't even allowed to move that's one of the reasons they called it a second serfdom. People in the cities could have these passports. If you were in a village, you weren't entitled to even have a passport, or which meant you weren't entitled to move out of the village. I mean, that can you imagine that level of of control. How so? This this now the famine strikes. So you did have other factors contributing to this famine. It wasn't just the economic policies, the macroeconomic policies and microeconomic policies, but the macroeconomic policies of the Stalin regime at the time, that there were environmental factors. I think there was a drought, but then you, you, you skew these market signals because it's all now a planned economy and it's all collectivized. Um, and you've got a perfect storm for starvation because instead of getting more production out of the farms, he wound up with a lot less, a lot less. What was the result of that on on Ukrainian communities, on the the country, and 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 on the individuals? I would just—it's not exactly a correction. It was not a great harvest the year before, but it was certainly as much as other years where there was no famine at all. That there was—if Ukrainians had kept the grain they grew, if it hadn't been taken from them to be sold abroad and to feed cities, there would have been enough to feed people. Um, so the other thing you see was when you have a system where the ends always justify the means and that that means distortion of the truth is, is just second nature. Recent research shows, for example, that at one of these party congresses where they bring all the, the uh, communist leadership, they actually inflated the amount of the, of the harvest because that would then justify taking more. So you lie about how much came in so that you can justify higher quotas when in fact you know that that much grain didn't come in in the first place. So uh, maybe we'll, I, I don't want to, I guess it's not too, I'm just trying to think of the order of which to talk about some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, but one point I wanted to be sure to make was that, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, That's okay. You take your time. 
I'll ask another question. It'll come back to me. Well, you know, the, the thing is, it's like people who challenge this story will say, and I've heard them say, mm. that um, the communist system actually resulted in more production. Regardless, people, I think, have this misconception that if, if the farmers were, were, were growing grain, they would just eat their grain. But, the, but farmers don't eat just grain. Right. It, that's specialization in, in the economy. So they have fields of grain, yes, but you don't live on grain alone. The grain is a commodity. In order to survive, they needed to sell that grain in order to make a living. If, so they produced the grain and then the government essentially took the grain. And how did they take the grain? Well, they, they bought the grain from the farmers, but they bought it basically below market value or in some cases gave them nothing because they didn't meet their quotas. So as a penalty, they ended up with nothing and confiscated other things that they had as, as penalties, if I'm correct in that, um, other food that they had. I've, I've spoken to survivors who told me they took their pots and pans. I, I was just going to say, if you read survivor accounts, it, it became, it, it got to the point where they'd come in and uh, take food off the table. And even sometimes just spitefully throw, you know, throw your soup on the ground because you're an enemy that they come in and even say, why are you still alive? You must be hiding food. Right. Um, so, so the, the there were stages yeah. of requisitions those the requisition is the amount of grain that your particular farm or village or yeah, collective farm has to give over to the state when they couldn't make those quotas instead of reducing the quotas they actually increased the quotas and when when villages and, and farms couldn't make those quotas as you say they imposed penalties and that could be taking meat and potatoes and beets but they also put villages on blacklists and a majority of villages in Ukraine were on these blacklists. And that meant that you, your village or your collective farm was on a list of places that wasn't allowed to be involved in any trade, which meant you're cut off from getting soap and matches and, and kerosene. It basically, in addition to starving, now you can't wash, now you can't even maintain hygiene. So it was, it was, uh, that also was a contributing factor. So you have people with basically no income or so little income that they, they can't take care of their families, can't take care of themselves. Even their personal possessions in many cases have been confiscated. People are being punished in a variety of ways. Uh, coercion is being used to try to force the, uh, the workers, the farmers, the, the farm hands to produce instead of incentivizing them with with reward for pay being paid for their labor. They put a law. Oh, sorry. I was going to say they, go law, they pass a law that's uh, it's called the five stocks of grain law. It says that taking as much as a, 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 a stock of wheat from a field was a, a crime. It, you're, it's theft of the state punishable by either 10 years in prison or by death. So you have stories of, of children going after the harvest, picking up the, 
the shaft, the, the, the what's left the, in the, the grains. I, I yeah. spoke to a survivor, yeah. a woman. This has to be 20 years ago now. I had a long conversation with her at a, a market here one day, just casually. We started to discuss it. I sat there for a couple of hours and spoke to her. She told me a story just like that about her family waiting for the soldiers to leave after confiscating all of their grain and then her and her sister would go out and sneak out into the fields to pick the grain off 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 the ground like the, the kernels of grain because that's all that they were left with and they were warned that if they caught them in the field doing it again they would be shot mm -hmm. that, that's an infamous law this five stalks of grain law yeah and people did get shot out yeah yeah mm -hmm. uh, i so i mean today even before this show began, you, people are already posting in the chat here saying that this story is not true. This doesn't sit well with me because I've met the survivors. I've heard the firsthand accounts myself from people telling me exactly what you're telling me now. I think part of that's a reflect. I think there are a bunch of factors why that's why that happens. I mean, the Soviet Union, there was an evolution of what they maintained. So it happened in 32, 33. The perpetrators, the Soviet authorities, they were denying it as it happened. They were offered international food aid. They said, no, we're good, no famine. So they turned down the League of Nations, the, the International Red Cross's offers of, of, of food aid. So the, for years it was, there was no famine. Anybody who says so is trading an anti-Soviet propaganda. Then, you know, there's enough information out there that they started to change at some point saying, well, there might have been a famine, but it was drought. Over time, even that wasn't really tenable. There were enough people working on the, the, the topic. Then it became, well, there was a famine, but it wasn't the Kremlin. There were some overzealous local communists that went a little too far. You know, the dizzy for success argument. Then with time, it became... Yes, there was a famine, but it happened everywhere in the Soviet Union. So the people who say there were none, they're arguing something that Russia doesn't even argue anymore. Even Russia says, yes, but it was all Soviet Union. So now that, and then there's, I, I don't want to simplify it. There are serious scholars who say it wasn't Ukraine specific. Ukrainians make their argument about what made this particularly bad in Ukraine, why it was genocide in Ukraine. There what there what there certainly what were areas of Russia that experienced serious famine. Um, but when you look at the statistics, percentage of Russians versus percentage of Ukrainians, it's an overwhelmingly Ukrainian famine. And I can tell you when there are, there was a, a serious research project in the 1950s called the Harvard Project. I think the U.S., maybe it was the military, wanted to learn as much as they could about the workings of the Soviet Union. So they interviewed all these emigres, all these people who had left the Soviet Union. And they were asking them things about the school system, about, about factories, about every aspect of Soviet life. And the Russians interviewed in 1950 by that project, they all called a Ukrainian famine. It was known at the time among everyone that this horrible famine is happening in Ukraine. Uh, so now Russia tries to say it was everywhere. And as, as I say, there were parts of Russia that suffered really badly, but it was at the time considered a Ukrainian famine. And I ought to mention also Kazakhstan had a, the Kazakhs had their own famine 
different causes. In that case, the Soviet Union took this group of people who were nomadic and had herds of sheep and livestock. They took the livestock for the meat um, and it had the effect of a higher percentage of Cossacks than Ukrainians died. But as I say, it was a different phenomenon. It was taking their livestock and their meat from them to feed cities. And so all of this is going on. It's it's being denied because it's such an embarrassment to the uh, the government uh, of the day, Stalin's government. So they're like, oh, no, no problem here. Nothing to see, nothing to see. How did they how did they manage to I guess say hide the problem or or successfully deny it there there were I guess journalists who aided them in in this regard Oh it's so interesting and it's interesting where we see what what have happened then still can happen today one thing that is less likely to happen today we have to remember there were no cell phones no live feeds Farmers weren't able to, you know, secretly show the guy coming into their house and, and taking the last of their food. Right. Um, and the journalists, they were co-opted largely. They were at some point limited to not going outside of Moscow. And most of them, they had their positions. There was an upcoming trial of uh, some British engineers that, and there are, there are some um, memoirs that talk about this. We wanted to stay. We were careerists. We didn't want to be kicked out of the Soviet Union before this big trial. So uh, we, we kept quiet, even though we all talked about the famine. Everybody knew there was a famine. It was a common topic of conversation. There were a couple brave journalists. There's a, 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 a fellow named Gareth Jones who did something just incredible. He got himself to Moscow and got permission to go on a train from Moscow to a Ukrainian city called Kharkiv, a big industrial center. But he jumped the train. He hopped off the train before he got there and uh, walked for like a week in Ukraine. He came out of Ukraine and held a press conference and talked about what had happened. But he was then called a liar by Walter Duranty, that was the New York Times reporter in Moscow. And he was the most influ influential journalist. He was advising the U.S. government um, informally, but they, they put a lot of stock in what he said. And in 1933, the U.S. actually recognized this new con the Soviet Union. So, um, yeah, uh, I think also there many people had a fascination with the Soviet experiment, this idealistic new world that was going to be created, this worker's paradise. Um, and so there were many people to, able to look the other way. You know, you have to break eggs to make an omelet. And I think also there was a different kind of political correctness. Uh, the lives of Ukrainian peasant farmers maybe didn't matter very much to these people. Faraway country, peasant masses, uh, somehow compared to this image of this um, new Soviet society. Some people, I think, were able to rationalize those losses as just what what had to happen. Yeah. Um, and, but for me, it's a it's a real cautionary tale about the dangers of extremist ideologies.
these true believers who could rationalize the death, the deaths of millions of people to create some idea. And they never created it anyway. So, yeah. And that is the case. Millions of people died. Uh, I see different estimates, the records of the day, not entirely clear and not even available until sort of the 1980s. But we're talking about somewhere between four and a half and maybe what, nine or 10 million people who died as a result of this. Yeah, the the demographers that my institution works with say four and a half, five million, but that's in Ukraine, the Soviet Republic proper. There were parts of Russia right over the border from Ukraine that were ethnically majority Ukrainian. And they also, you know, there might be another million people outside Ukraine that were ethnically Ukrainian who died. But yeah, four and a half million in the Ukrainian SSR is one figure. Some people argue that it was more like six or seven. You know, I leave that to the demographers who who study the numbers. But I can tell, you know, this lower number, four and a half million, meant that in the two most populous states, um, they call them oblasts, that would be one in four people in the countryside, in, in Kharkiv and Kiev oblasts. One in four people would have died uh, in that time. And I mean, I, I hate to even <clears throat> mention this, but there are historical accounts of things becoming so bad, people were so desperate that they actually resorted to cannibalism. That's true. Uh, there are many accounts that document that. One thing that surprised me was uh, when other Ukrainians were asked about it, most were quite uh, understanding that people were driven to insanity, basically. You know, that that when you've been hungry for weeks, if not months, you're not in your right mind. I, I did want to mention one other thing, uh, why it is that we have people who deny the, the whole of the more today. Well, there, there can be bad actors who know what happened and deny it for their own reasons, but why it's possible to still not have the information. Um, so you have this denial for 60 years from the time that it happened till the fall of the Soviet Union, basically. Uh, in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union is, is, things are changing. The archives for the first time become accessible. Up to then, researchers really couldn't get into the archives. What they found out when they could get into the Soviet archives was, yes, just as the survivors told us, those survivors who did get out of the country and, and tried to tell the world what happened, yes, the Soviet leadership had been notified about famine conditions when they upped requisition quotas. It was a punishment of the peasant farmers for their resistance to collectivization and, and to Soviet rule more more broadly. Uh, the archives, the documents in the archives also showed that Stalin really did have an obsession and a fear of losing Ukraine. There's a letter where he says, you know, we have to, if we don't take harsher measures, and the quote goes, we will lose Ukraine. So he was worried about the lack of support for this regime in Ukraine. Uh, he also, Stalin also wrote of his distrust of the leading Ukrainian communists and their he thought they were being too soft on these, you know, lazy Ukrainian peasants who didn't want to provide all the grain that he was demanding. And he thought they had too, that these Ukrainian communists had too much sympathy for the peasant farmers. 
and they were eventually replaced with officials from Russia. I think this is history that is important to share with people because it explains why there has been, you know, decades of distrust and friction between many people in Ukraine and and Russian government. Um, can, can you speak to that and how it, it sort of manifests itself today? Yes, I, I, I did think of one other reason, though. I think I think it's important to think about because this mm -hmm. still happens today. One of the most successful techniques in making people either not believe or not care is, well, denial works pretty well, but then throwing out multiple theories. If you remember when MH17 got shot down by Russian-controlled, the Malaysian flight that got shot yeah, down yeah. over Ukraine by these Russian-controlled troops, what Russia did was put out multiple theories, some of them crazy, you know, like there were already dead bodies on the plane, but they threw out so many theories that I, the effect is for people to shrug their shoulder and say, what can we do? We'll never know the truth. And I, I think that is what they do a lot. They put out a bunch of theories that are meant to confuse and have you say, well, what is the truth? How can we ever know the truth? Um, and in, in indeed, in Russia, there were, were have been official policies where it was actually illegal to even talk about this in the in the context in which we're talking about it now. Censorship. Oh, absolutely, there was such a taboo on this topic. Nobody would have talked about it publicly for for fear of punishment. Uh, outside of Ukraine, you had some survivors who got out who were often afraid to talk publicly because they didn't want their family members to be punished in, in Ukraine. Um, and the Soviet Union also tried to smear those who did talk about it with, um, with various labels. And um, so yeah. What's, yeah. So what's, what's the impact of all of that today then? Um, obviously still in the minds of people alive today, this has to affect the, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, which is obviously at, at a, an all-time low right now. Well, and, that, and the one tragedy of this is, you know, Russia could have disavowed connection from this and said it was the Soviet Union then, it, it was Kremlin but we're, we're not them. But they doubled down and sort of have taken on the mantle of the Soviet legacy, you know, and... I've noticed that as well. I, I don't understand it. Putin is not Stalin. Russia today is not the former Soviet Union. A lot has changed. Um, obviously, we have a war going on there right now, which is not in anybody's best interests, in my opinion, uh, which I would very much like to see come to an end. Uh, we need peace, not more killing. Um, but I don't understand why the denial is is still there. Why so many people insist, people in, in positions of influence insist on, on saying that it's just a lie. And it's demonstrably not the case because of all the research that has been going on. You would have to discount the memoirs and testimonies of tens of thousands of survivors and witnesses who 
have had no way to coordinate or be or or to be coached or they so yeah t- the, tell it tell it to the woman that i spoke to at the yeah. market you know 20 years ago who just had a conversation with me she had no reason to lie to me about it we well, were just talking early, yeah in the early 1990s when it became possible to talk about this there was a journalist in ukraine uh named volodymyr maniak and he put out a call in a number of newspapers saying send me your holodomor uh memoirs and this was after a period of time when no one could talk about it most people didn't even know is this something that uh they would have no way to know what happened all over ukraine you know what happened in your own village and these people wrote these memoirs these letters to him and when you read these letters these people didn't know about the existence of thousands of other letters just like theirs um so if you see these things, you have to, I, I, the best case scenario, the people who say it didn't happen, don't know about all the evidence. Right. Worst case is they don't want to know the evidence. And, and who could blame them? I mean, a lot of this evidence was suppressed, hidden right. for decades and decades. It wasn't until uh, sort of the mid eighties that after the fall of the Berlin wall and the dissolution of the, the former Soviet union, that these documents were even made available. So there was no way for a lot of people to, to even know that this had happened. And Rick, sometimes it's, it's, it seems almost ironic that some of the hardest people to convince have been people in Soviet studies because the field got established and people learned from their professors and their professors formed views before those archives were open. So now you're telling them to rethink something that they thought that they knew inside and out. But slowly things are changing. Uh, One of the things that I'm probably proudest of where I work is that we've held any number of conferences. We invite young scholars. And now there's a cohort of these, we call them early career scholars who are working on this topic. They know each other, they support each other, they're interested in each other's work. And there's really a field that didn't exist before, Holodomor studies. And so the, I know that your organization has been bringing in people who are engaging in new types of research. And I think you've just touched on that there. What, what, what is meant by new research techniques? What are they doing that's new and, and different today? there are a couple things. There's been a tendency in history that is a different approach than it was a generation ago, where history was the study of countries and the policies and actions of leaders of countries. People also now look more at what happened to individuals. How did people, so in the case of the whole of the more, what happened to the peasant farmer how did individuals survive? What were some of the things they did to survive? What were the ways they died? You know, this would not have been history a couple of generations ago, but now it's considered valid to look at the experience of, of individuals. In our work, so at the Holdemore Research Education Consortium, for the past 10 years, we've held different conferences. And the way I look at it, with every conference, I think about what, what's an audience of people who ought to know about this, for whom the Holodomor should be relevant, but they still don't really know that much about it because of all the reasons we've talked about. And so in the last years, we had a conference called Communism and Hunger. That, and that 
conference, we had specialists on a famine in China and Kazakhstan and Korea, uh, North Korea as well. We've had a conference called um, Starvation as a Political Tool because you saw starvation used politically in the Armenian genocide, in the Irish famine, in Sudan. We had a conference called Empire, Colonialism and Famine. There's a lot of attention these days to questions of empire and colonialism, but relatively little has been done on uh, the, the imperial or colonial aspects of famine. And in U Ukraine, there are definitely issues that you could look at from the, from the prism, from the perspective of, of that uh, approach, colonialism and empire. So yes, looking, and then there's genocide studies. Uh, that's a, another way to look at this. Now, sometimes we get, uh, so we have a, we give out research grants. Every year we announce a competition and people doing research can apply for a grant. They're not huge. They're typical might be $1,500, but for a, a researcher, it can make a difference. And most of our advisors are historians and that's what we sort of expect to get as proposals. But then a couple of years ago, we had one from an epidemiologist at Columbia University. And he's been studying the incidence of diabetes in subsequent generations. It turns out, and he's done the research now, that generations later, diabetes is of um, much higher incidence uh, if the mothers were uh, had starvation conditions in, uh, I think it's the first three months of pregnancy. So something we never would have thought of as an area of research, but the incidence of diabetes in places where there's been uh, starvation. We got, for example, um, a proposal, someone working on a Master of Arts writing her final uh, project for a, a, a master's at Boston University who was writing a play about collectivization and the famine. So it's just, it's interesting the, the directions this has taken us in. And, you know, just to come back to the, the economic policies, because really that is the, you know, at the, the center of this, the, 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 the naysayers say, oh, well, there have been famines before. Um, you know, they, they point to collectivization as the solution to starvation. But the, the point is, they confiscated the commodity. They took all the grain. The state well, took the grain, imposed penalties. And then when people had nothing to eat because they took the food literally off their tables, you already touched on it. They took away their passports. They closed the borders. They prevented the people from leaving to go find food. Rick, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I neglected to mention that, that that's a, a big part of it, that actually preventing people from leaving Ukraine. That, that there's a, a decree that prevented people from leaving Ukraine in search of food. Um, I mean, some got through anyway. They, they got to the cities and out of Ukraine any way they could. But, um, yeah. So you can... You can understand why some people might be a little bit upset even today over something like this. And when you you layer on top of that, the censorship, the denial, the um, in the face of overwhelming evidence, you can understand why that would affect the way Ukrainians view Russia today, even. Um, I mean, I try I understand. I've come to the conclusion a long time ago that there's, there's very little in life 
or, or in the world that's black and white. There are shades of gray in these, these kinds of, in everything. So I just, I can't, I, I can't just sit here and, and say, this side all right, this side all wrong. But this is just undeniable. And I think that's the conclusion that many governments around the world have come to now, many research organizations. Can, can you speak to that? It sounds like you've really done your research, Rick. There's been a whole chain of governments that have recognized the Holodomor's genocide in the past year. Uh, it's 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 been it could be even ten in the past year. Um, I you asked earlier about the ongoing effect. I would say on the personal level, it gets me up and going to work. That there's something in me that says this is wrong. That truth has been denied, that justice means not letting lies win out. And that yeah, motivates yeah. me to make sure that this is not, that the Soviet perpetrators wanted those people to be erased from history. Uh, not only that they were gone, but nobody would even know they were gone. And uh, I should mention, this is the 90th anniversary year of the whole of the Mars. So both in Ukraine and in communities abroad, there are, of course, commemorations planned. Every year, there are commemorations in the month of November. That's the traditional time. But this year, of course, in a 90th memorial year, special, larger commemorations are planned. But they're not the commemorations we would have wanted or would have imagined even five years ago. You know, in my work, of course, we thought ahead that 90th anniversary is coming up. What are we doing for it? Um, and then I was thinking about how when an atrocity or a genocide happens in the first years afterwards, people come together to grieve. But now this many years later, it's not as much about grief as a co community coming together and recognizing with dignity those lives that were lost, recognizing the resilience. But the problem right now for Ukrainians is they can't say, and never again. I don't want to overstate the similarities, but people are again thrown back into grieving. If you're standing there talking about a time when your ancestors were targeted and you know that right now the Kremlin may be aiming a missile right at the city you live in, it's a very different commemoration of the 90th anniversary year than we, than we would have imagined even a couple of years before. Yeah, I mean, it's my view that this war never had to happen anyway, but um, and I've said from the beginning that I, I've always thought that Ukraine should be its, its own sovereign state, should be neutral. I think that would have been the best case scenario. That's my position on it. Um, I think that it does a disservice to Ukraine, to Russia, to the people of the world to deny that this happened. Because as far as I'm concerned, you can't get back to a place of peace, long lasting peace, without actual truth. It's not not proper, it's wrong to deny that this has happened, to be that insensitive to the people of a, of a country. Because as long as you lie and lie and lie about it, or deny, 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 it's, this, it's, it's similar to what's happened here in Canada with First Nations peoples, or you can go to all kinds of places around the world where certain groups of the population have been 
victimized, victims of genocides. It's it's just not right. No, I agree, and you know, it's a painful process, but Canada shows it can be done. The U.S. is grappling with the legacy of slavery. It's difficult, it, but this outright denial, this digging in, I, I don't know, there's something in that, uh, I was going to say Soviet mi mindset, post-Soviet mindset, that can't admit any wrong or weakness um, to dig in it's, your heels on this. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing, even on a, on a, on a, on a personal level. It, it's embarrassing to me when people talk about what my government has done to First Nations yeah. peoples. It's It's got to be embarrassing for the people of Russia when they are challenged with this information, honestly, that they've not been privy to, documents that they've never seen, to them, it's like, what, what are you talking about? I've, I've grown up, my whole family, this never happened. We never talked about this. Where did this come from? And, you know, it's not even brought to the surface until, as I say, the mid-1980s. And now you're accused of just spreading propaganda. It, I, it doesn't sit well with me. Well, I really appreciate that you were determined to make this the subject of a of, of one of your shows and give me a chance to talk about it. I hope that our conversation has made any doubter think about it a little more seriously. And I would urge you, we have a website. It's really easy to remember. So mm -hmm. we're the Holodomor Research Education Consortium. So that's H-R-E-C at ualberta.org. Wait, I think I'm giving you an email. Sorry. No, the uh, website is holodomor.ca. Couldn't be easier. That's holodomor. Those are all O's. Holodomor.ca. And there, you can see right. research. There's educational resources. There's survivor accounts. There are photos. Uh, pretty much anything you'd want to know about the holodomor and the state of what's known about it can be found there. Right. Um I just want to make sure we haven't missed anything important here. Um, Me too. So, <laughs> so what, what do you think the, the long-lasting lesson should be from all of this? Well, I think we touched on it. I think, uh, well, one thing, I take very seriously the, 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 the dangers of an authoritarian authoritarian governments that have too much control. Mm -hmm. um, I would say also the danger of when you see a campaign to demonize any particular group in a population, the way the kulaks were, that's a sign you're going in a direction that means it's okay to destroy people. Um, and uh, the, well, why I referred to what we talked about earlier, danger of extremist thinking. These people who could really think that what they were doing was uh, justified and going in. And I mean, we, we have many testimonies of survivors who talk about these fanatic true believers coming into their homes and, um, uh, you know, with old people and children there and, and considering these all an enemy class that needed to be destroyed for the future of, of this Soviet paradise. And we know that human beings are capable of doing those kinds of things because we just witnessed it on both sides, honestly, in Israel and, and in Palestine. So people will do these things. It's been done before. 
It's it's yeah. this is a terrible thing. And you know, Ukraine has been I, I referred to it last night as, as a, a country that's been used as a doormat throughout history by mm-hmm. many, many different countries. And in fact, here I'll I'll bring up a a list. This is from uh, the History Channel website. Mm-hmm. Let me just bring this up. It, it, because th- th- there's so much tragedy. You know, 1037, <laughs> look how far back this goes. This is a list of countries that have, in one way or another, invaded Ukraine. Or occupied. or Yeah, or, yeah, yeah you know. Yeah, yeah. Starts in 1037, then 1240, the Mongol invasion, 1363, Lithuania, Ivan III in 1476, 1569, the Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, the Cossack Rebellion in 16, I mean, just 1648, and it just goes on and on and on. 1708, Russia wins control of eastern Ukraine. 1783, Catherine the Great annexes Crimea. 1795, Russia gains majority of Ukrainian land. 1812, Napoleon has his way in there, of course. I mean, (laughs) why would he be left out? 1800s. You get the Ukrainian nationalist movement, which I think at the time was sort of a, a response to nationalist movements throughout Europe anyway. Right. Um, 1917, and this is where we're getting into more modern modern history, uh, Ukraine Council proclaims right to order their own lives. See, and then you get the Russian Revolution in there. Um, they have short-lived independence in 1918, but then in 1919, Ukraine is divided into four parts in the aftermath of World War One. And then 20 and 21, it's the end of the Civil War. You get um, then we're getting into the kind of the area where, where we're talking about. It's incorporated into the Soviet Union in 1922. So this is a, a country where you have a people who have a, a, you know, a long history of, of being proudly independent, strongly strong willed people in that way. Um, proud to have even just a small parcel of land for a family farm and constantly generation after generation after generation being essentially trampled on by people from all the neighboring countries because they want to come in there anyway and use the farmland, which is the richest farmland, some of the richest farmland if in the world. So it's extremely valuable for, for that reason. It just goes on and on. And then Stalin with his policies, you know, and I'm sorry, folks, but truth is truth is truth. And and the Ukrainian people, you know, and then even even when the Soviet Union, how did they get rid of the Soviet Union? Well, the Germans came in and invaded on the other side. And some people saw them as liberators at the time, but not everybody. And it didn't take long for the Ukrainian people to realize they were really no better off under German occupation at the time. And then that all falls apart. And then the Soviet Union comes back in again at the end of World War II. I mean, you, you guys can't win, <laughs> to, to, put it, to put it bluntly. You just, you've just been, who's coming in next? I mean, it, I don't know when the madness stops, but that's why also I've taken the position that Ukraine should just be its own country, a buffer state even for the Soviet Union, if, if it makes them feel better. Leave you guys independent. Um, be neutral, not on the side of the West, not on the side of Russia, so that nobody's threatened by you and let you live your lives and in your own way and have self-determination. But that's, that's me. Yeah. The question is whether Russia would even accept that because uh, it seems 
uh, pretty clear that they, I mean, Putin pretty much argues that there's no such thing as Ukrainian and that the territory really ought to be Ukra ought to be Russia's. But I wanted to respond to one other thing. The, the people who say that uh, the, the Soviet collectivization w was in the big picture of plus. I mean, there are scholars, there's a guy named Andrea Graziosi, an Italian, who argues that really Soviet agriculture never recovered from collectivization. It always limped along. They were importing food and grain uh, for the whole Soviet Union, that it really wrecked agriculture more than it ever fixed a problem. So I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not an agriculture specialist, but Andrea Graziosi is a brilliant man. Well, the, the reality is, you know, any society, and, and this is my assessment, any economy that relies on collectivization, you're removing market signals, anything that's centrally planned is not the most efficient. As a result, the Soviet Union didn't have, didn't never reach its full productive capacity in the way that the West did. That's ultimately why the Soviet Union failed in the arms race. They could not keep up financially, economically with the West and it eventually bankrupted them. In the arms race did they they couldn't keep up and the quality of the goods being produced wasn't as good as it was coming out of the west and there are just a whole host of other reasons but it all really came down to inefficiency in their economic system because it left them vulnerable uh, in the end and it collapsed and i'm at the most basic where do you have the, the people who think think it was uh for example drought where do you have a famine where the people who starve are the ones who grew the food? The cities, they, they were pinched. They were pressed. The cities were suffering, but they weren't starving in the numbers that the, 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 right. the, pe the people who grew the full food were starving because it was, it was all seized from them. That's exactly right. It was, it was confiscated. It was a policy of uh, collectivism and confiscation. There was the, the, the incentives to produce were removed and replaced with coercive measures. You will produce or else. And the and argument that, that there was a Ukraine specificity to this, you mentioned that the borders were closed. What uh, I want to be sure to mention that uh, some people might know this, that in the 1920s, the Soviet Union really needed to gain allies. And they had a policy called indigenization. They it's made a, a, a bit of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they wanted to get local elites, local people supporting them. So in the countries where the Soviet Union was becoming established, they would have local newspapers in the local language. They would hire locals. And, and that was happening in Ukraine. So there was this brief flourishing of Ukrainian literature and art. And some people were thinking this isn't going so badly uh, under the Soviets. And this all comes to a crashing halt in about in by the time of the famine. And at the same time that the starvation is happening, Ukrainian cultural leaders are being suppressed. Ukrainian re religious leaders are being arrested. Um, and even Ukrainian communists eventually aren't trusted either. So that's that's part of some people use the term Holodomor to mean more than just the starvation, but the assault on Ukrainian culture more generally. Matter of fact, there's a conference on Thursday at Columbia University called 
assault on culture in Ukraine, the Holodomore years. That's that'll be looking at just these questions. Um, you know, suddenly the Ukrainian schools get shut and become Russian schools. The Ukrainian language newspapers get shut down. The F, they even they even manipulate the dictionary to make Ukrainian words closer to Russian words. So this is all happening at the same time as, as the famine. And the long-lasting impacts are still evident today. And I know that so many people died in the famine or the during the Holodomor that Russia actually had to bring more people in to repopulate some parts of Ukraine. Yeah, that that is an, under some debate whether that... So Ukraine was definitely, you could say, russified. It seemed to be more after World War II and during industrialization that a lot of the settlers that came after the Holodomor ended up going back to Russia. Okay. But so it might not be such a, a equation, you know, Ukrainian houses emptied, Russians moved in. Uh, and I, you know, that can be sort of inflammatory to say that right. because it doesn't seem to be entirely true. But the fact that over time the policy was to have Russians come and work in Ukraine, that that's without a doubt, especially after after World War II. OK, well, again, you know, I think it's important to have real information. You can't get. Back to peace, I don't think, unless people are dealing with with real truth and I agree. Uh, it has to be the foundation of everything. Yeah. What yeah. actually happened? Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add tonight, or think that I might have missed with you? You've. I, I think it's been a great conversation. I think we covered an awful lot. Um, if people want to know more, uh, if if you have, uh, if you have the strength to look at the survivor uh, accounts, I, I think you can't help but have. Uh, um, compassion for these people. I would say one thing, just it's, uh, I've been approached at various points, people making movies or documentaries about this period of time or the famine. And one thing that I realize we sort of run up against is if you, if you read a account, you might feel sympathy, but, um, actual visual representations, I, I, I think we are, it's natural to be repulsed by starvation. Like it, it, we're repulsed by disease. We we don't want to be anywhere near things that could mean threatening our own existence. So um, it was just kind of interesting. Like how do you portray? How do you portray this in a way that um, evokes sympathy and not and not uh, repulsion? Yeah. repulsion so i you know there are monuments in in ukraine and uh, other parts of the world and the ones that are more effective are probably the ones that are less literal because it's too overpowering an image to actually see you know like skeletal bodies um it's too easy to think these aren't people like you and me when in when in fact they are exactly like us marta thank you so much thank you so much tonight. for this opportunity i, I really appreciate it rick yeah, I think it's been very helpful. Thank you. Bye. Okay, folks, stick around. We're going to take a brief break here, and uh, then we'll come back on the other side, and we'll dig into some of the news of the day. Don't go away.
Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, folks, uh, just uh, taking care of a couple of things here in the studio. I will be right back after this. Don't go away. We are Mavericks. We say no to the Trudeau and Biden New World Order. And to bugs. Because bugs are creepy and gross. And people should not eat bugs. Maverick News. The world is watching. sticking around Justin Trudeau says that uh, even wars have rules let me see if I can find the clip I was so focused on that interview with Marta which I'm extremely grateful for um, I was so focused on that that uh, I don't have the clip of him queued up. I'm not sure if it's even available, but it likely is here. Let me just see if I have, I've got this queued up here. There might be a clip of him here someplace. Hang on. In any event, yeah. I'll bring up this. Here's the CTV account of it, and I'll just bring their page up. I think we'll probably have the clip here. And man, it's been another day of protests around the world and violence. Here. Tragic. Even wars have rules. Trudeau calls on Hamas to free hostages and allow humanitarian access. Hang on a second. Just checking something else here. Yeah, I'm going to take another quick break, folks, and uh, just get this queued up properly for you. Hang on. I'll be right back. Sorry, just a little disorganized at the moment. The New World Order. Government overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream media lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind.
fear not the storm. For truth is on our side. Maverick News. The world is watching. Let's listen to this clip. ...of those attacks to exact this maximum damage on... Countless of those lives have been lost or put in danger as a direct result of the sadistic attacks of Hamas. And that was the purpose of those attacks, to exact this maximum damage on both Israelis and Palestinians and thwart any attempt for peace. We know that the regime in Iran was behind these attacks. And we know that the most powerful uh, organizer of terrorism in the world is the IRGC, which operates legally in Canada today. We'll... In fact, you know what? I'm going to pull out of that. I've got the, uh, the full clip over here. Hang on. I'm going to pull it up over here instead. Let me bring it over here. Yes, this is where we want to go. Again, sorry for not having this better prepared for you. But the important thing is we get you the right context and the full context and the right information. Here we go. Here's Pierre Polyev starting off this debate in the House of Commons. Nearly two weeks ago, there are Canadians who are still in danger. 4,000 Canadians are looking for help from the federal government to get out of Israel about 300 Canadians are trying to leave Gaza. And between 40,000 and 70,000 Canadians are in Lebanon. What is the government doing to protect Canadians that are in danger? The Honourable Deputy Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker. Since this is the first time we are all in this house, since the horrible terrorist attacks by Hamas, allow me to say this. Canada is with the state of Israel and the Israeli people. Canada is at the side of Israel and the people of Israel, and they can count on the continued support of Canada. We demand the immediate liberation of all hostages and unequivocally condemn the terrorist attacks done by Hamas. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Innocent lives, be they Palestinian or Israeli, Jewish, Muslim or Christian or otherwise, are all equally precious. Countless of those lives have been lost or put in danger as a direct result of the sadistic attacks of Hamas. And that was the purpose of those attacks, to exact as maximum damage on both Israelis and Palestinians and thwart any attempt for peace. We know that the regime in Iran was behind these attacks. And we know that the most powerful uh, uh, organizer of terrorism in the world is the IRGC, which operates legally in Canada today. Will the government accept the conservative common sense bill to criminalize the IRGC in Canada? 
Then I have the vice-premier minister. The Honourable Deputy Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, this is the first time we are all present in this House since these horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas on the State of Israel and the Israeli people. So I would like to begin by being very clear in English this time. Canada stands with the State of Israel and with the Israeli people. Israel can count on Canada's support. Canada condemns unequivocally Hamas's terrorist attacks, and we call for the immediate release of all hostages. Then I have Chef de l'Opposition. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Last fall, the Finance Minister promised a balanced budget within six years. Last spring, she broke that promise and said that we'd have a balanced budget never. And last week, the Parliamentary Budget Officer revealed that her deficit is now 15 percent bigger than she said it was only six months ago. Is the has the government lost total control of our debt? And how much is this inflationary spending going to add to the interest rates Canadians pay on their mega mortgages? The Honourable Deputy Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, our government will be providing an update on our debt and deficit figures and on our revenues in the fall economic statement in due course. When it comes to Canada's fiscal position, let me also be very, very clear. Canadians should listen to the independent ratings agencies whose job it is to evaluate Canada's position and not the partisan talking Canada down attacks of the opposition. Canada's AAA rating has been reaffirmed by ratings agencies since the budget. We are strong fiscally. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Apparently, former Liberal Finance Minister. Okay, we're going to pull out of this because we're on to economic things. And I do have Trudeau's clip queued up here where he is talking about Hamas and the hostages. Let me share that with you now. Here he is, Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons today. Mr. Speaker, among the thousands of people affected by this violence, five Canadians were murdered by Hamas terrorists. Three Canadians are reported missing and may be hostages. I know that all parliamentarians and Canadians' thoughts are with them and their loved ones. Canada asks Hamas to free all hostages immediately. Mr. Speaker, among the thousands of people affected by this violence, five Canadians were murdered by Hamas terrorists. Three Canadians are reported missing and may be hostages. I know that all parliamentarians and Canadians' thoughts are with them and their loved ones. Canada asks Hamas to free all hostages immediately. Mr. Speaker, among the thousands of people 
So there's that. Not that that will have any impact in my view, <clears throat> but it's there. Nevertheless, um, what else do we have going on on the uh, Israel-Hamas war front tonight? We have a little slow off the mark here tonight, folks. Gates, sorry about that. Yeah, but the IDF says it has killed the head of uh, Hamas general intelligence at least 1400 people have now died and 3400 others have been injured in Israel those are just the numbers in Israel since that initial attack on October 7th in Gaza at least 2700 people have been killed and 9700 more injured We know the tensions continue to run high with the prospect of ground war and evacuation orders for Gaza. <clears throat> Excuse me, after the Israeli Defense Forces called for all residents of Gaza City to evacuate their homes and move south for their protection. Media indicating that they really may have no real place to go because they can't get out of the country or get out of Gaza, rather. With about the only exit on the Egypt border. And there is some indication that that border crossing has essentially been shut down. And we know that thousands of missiles fired from Gaza began coming down on Israel like literally thousands of them when this all began. And now the IDF says it has killed a Hamas council member, the head of the Shura Council of Hamas. His name is Osama al-Mazini in the Gaza Strip. The IDF has added that it is now attacking military targets of the Hezbollah terrorist organization. These are their words in Lebanese territory. That is further escalation, folks. So we'll keep following this. Of course, we have been talking about it um, day after day since the, uh, the initial attack. Um, let me see what else we have. Yeah, we've got that gunman in Brussels as well. Let me see if I can get you that. Two people killed there. It appears to be related to all of this. And... Yeah, we just came through. This was a gunman in, the, in Brussels, announced his allegiance to ISIS, stated his need to avenge Muslims, in his words. And the report is that he's killed two Swedish nationals and injured 
a number of other civilians. And there is, a, I guess, a massive manhunt underway in Brussels where they are looking for that gunman. Here's some video. Bring it up for you. So we're uh, not seeing any de-escalation, that's for sure. None. Hang on, going to take another quick break. Queue up some more stuff for you. I'll be right back. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow may be too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The, the world, world is watching.
Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, I have for you, queued up, a message that went out today from a, a group, I think a couple of different freedom groups have formed sort of an organization or whatever. And they, this is the first day of what they're calling their uh, shame and non-confidence national campaign aimed at the federal government in Canada. I'm just going to let uh, one of the main people behind this, Jeffrey Gibson, just going to bring you his message. So you can hear what he has to say. This, of course, happening at a pivotal moment in everything going on with regard to that movement. And day one kicked off on Parliament Hill in Canada today. Folks. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Share this out. This is a very important message. So this was just sent like to me a number of hours ago. Everyday but... lives. We have just kicked off our national campaign on Parliament Hill. So I'd appreciate if you share this message out as it is an important one. And I'm going to just read through our official statement here. We're just gonna give it another minute. Let some peeps get on. I see some people popping on here now slowly. So Maggie was just on Parliament Hill with our signs, our banners. And these banners over the coming days, it'll probably take maybe a week or two before we can get all 338, but these signs and banners are going to be on all 338 ridings in Canada. So as you've heard me mention the last few days, last week, we are looking for a volunteer from each riding. Uh, it's not going to require you to do a, a whole lot. So by no means are we asking people to take on a huge task. Uh, but it's a very important one. So I'm just going to read through this here. And we're going to cut this short as I want to leave this entirely centered around uh, our point here today. So uh, projects, uh, let's see here. Politicians aren't listening. The conduct of our members of parliament no longer reflects the values and consent of the citizens. Canadians declare non-confidence in all our politicians and the system of governance. Let's start at day one. It's not enough to witness a mismanaged health crisis from an already mismanaged overspending and government overreach crisis. No, it needs to be further supplemented by an unacceptable migration policy and a human humanity sustainable development plan. Our governance model, led by our politicians in all levels of government, institutions and NGOs, has failed its citizens. Life in our communities is becoming impossible with rents, housing prices, food and energy costs rising beyond the reach of many. The sustainable development plan will bring un unprecedented harm and destruction to our communities in all aspects of our lives. Taxes on wages, property, gasoline, carbon tax, and other necessities are only rising to the point no longer acceptable and affordable. 
Elected representatives and government workers are the only ones getting wages and pension increases to keep up with inflation while regular citizens are left to suffer and constantly robed out of the fundamental rights to work and to create an affordable family-friendly living standard. Consultants, non-governmental organizations, and other globalist groups are hired and given the power to determine our land use bylaws, climate policies, recreational land use, and many critical features of our daily lives without accountability to taxpayers and without their consent. Where is the money being sent? Robbing citizens by paying corporations, endless government programs, subsidies, domestic and foreign NGOs, finance conflicts and wars, spending methodology no longer affordable, acceptable, and most importantly, unhuman. The cost of living is the result of greed, a mismanagement of future planning based on growth and created an unprecedented gap between availability and demand in all aspects, including an unresponsible, unaccountable, and transparent migration propaganda scheme. Fellow citizens, let's think clearly and with common sense. The very same politicians, institutions, and NGOs who got us as here in the first place try to tell in confidence us how to Try, sorry, my apologies. Try to tell and convince us how to fix the crisis now when the prices are at its highest. Canadians demand accountability and transparency in all aspects. The housing crisis is beyond affordability and demand will only rise. We declare to immediately stop these unpre unprecedented migration policies and initiatives. It is no longer acceptable to rob citizens out of affordable housing and the labor market. Politicians aren't listening. The solution. We must reclaim our communities through civic engagement, the governance of our town councils, school boards, hospitals, police services, etc. In all levels of government must be replaced by responsible, accountable and transparent citizens. Civis for Reform is a three part plan to achieve reform in our communities. CATS, which stands for Community Accountability and Transparency Councils. Civis Assemblies, citizens debating and voting on governance policies. System reform. The system is broken and globalists are running and ruining our communities and lives. Conclusion. Don't point the finger to landlords, corporations, etc. We have all rights to point finger to our present politicians and their supposed citizens representative governance model. The shame and non-confidence campaign is directed to our fellow citizens and less to our elected representatives. We all must stand behind and support this now. It's time for a true reform. We will spread the message across the country and reclaim our communities. Please visit civis for the number for reform.org. I'll put that in the comments as well. Become involved and make your voice heard and count. So Martin wrote that up. That is our uh, official statement for right now. Um, as you can see, I uh, tagged Maggie. Maggie was just live on the hill with the banners and the signs. These signs will be in all 338 ridings. We are going to be working hard to achieve that. That is our number one goal right away, is making sure all of these signs are on every office. If you are willing to take that upon yourself in your community, in your riding, then we want you. This is very important. Love you too, brother. Man, we, this, and just so everybody knows, this is not taking away from anything that is going on up there. More and more people are going up there. And now... We are putting things into place that we can stand on. We are, we are in a time for a political revolution. Now, when I say revolution, I don't mean violently. We are in time for a political revolution. And this is it, folks. I'm going to cut this off. I'm going to keep it short to the point. I would really appreciate if we can all share this out. 
tonight. We'll put this into a nice post with the links. And uh, let's go. Day one of our shame and non-confidence campaign, national campaign. Let's go, folks. I apologize, my microphone was muted. That's what happens when you're here all by yourself. <clears throat> As I was trying to tell you, I'm going to try to get somebody on, maybe as early as tomorrow, to do an interview about that campaign. So we'll see if that happens tomorrow. I have a contact there, and uh, I've reached out. In addition to that, I want to bring you this with Alan Dershowitz, the lawyer, who is a Democrat. But um, thank you, Gina, for letting me know. My mic was muted, but I think we're back uh, back up and running here now. And we're going to go to this clip of Alan Dershowitz, who says, <clears throat> I did notice that he's taken this position trying to clarify that Gaza is not the most densely populated place on the planet. He has made that statement. He also wants to clarify a few other things. So I've got this queued up with Alan Dershowitz tonight for you. And here we go. Back to the Dershow. I'm going to continue to talk about what's going on in the Middle East because Nothing's the same. Everything has uh, changed and we're seeing a real disaster unfolding in the Middle East. Uh, today, I want to talk about one aspect of the issue. I want to talk about the role of civilians in wartime and the role of international law in protecting uh, civilians. There are two concepts in international law designed to protect civilians. Um, one is, is called proportionality and the other is called the principle of distinction. Distinction is obvious. You have to distinguish between military people who are appropriate targets and civilians who are not appropriate targets. That was easy in the Second World War. Nazis wore uniforms with big swastikas and, and uh, medals, uh, and civilians uh, didn't. And if a civilian uh, was found engaged in war activities, such as the uh, a dozen or so um, uh, civilians who came and landed on American shores. I was I was a kid when that happened. I remember it um, uh, in a submarine and were captured. They were treated like civilians. That is, they weren't given the benefit of prisoner of war military status. They were tried by a, a court martial, maybe an appropriate military tribunal, was subject to execution and were in fact executed. Had they been soldiers, they would not have been executed. So sometimes. The law protects soldiers more than it does civilians, but in actual combat, it protects civilians uh, more than more than soldiers. And so 
we have the concept of proportionality, probably the most misunderstood concept in all of international law. Most people think proportionality means that, that if Hamas fires one rocket, Israel can't fire 10 rockets at the Hamas soldiers, uh, at the Hamas uh, terrorists. Uh, that's just not what proportionality means. Um, every country is entitled to defend itself by using massive, massive disproportionate force against other soldiers. That is, if um, if a, a, a thousand soldiers fire a single rocket um, at, at Israel and, and injure one Israeli, Israel is entitled to retaliate by killing all thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 uh, Hamas uh, uh, soldiers. When Pearl Harbor was bombed and several thousand Americans were, were killed, American soldiers, the United States was entitled to respond by killing hundreds of thousands or millions if necessary of Japanese soldiers. They were not entitled to respond by unnecessarily killing um, a, a civilian. So the concept of proportionality has absolutely nothing to do with the proportionate response military to military. That's the big confusion. Proportionality simply means this, that the anticipated civilian casualties in any military activity, the anticipated civilian casualties, let's assume you have a plan to go in and destroy an, an enemy rocket base. And let's assume you have intelligence that shows you there'll be 100 deaths, um, 90 of them will be uh, terrorists, but there'll be 10 civilians uh, killed. The anticipation of 10 civilians being killed, the anticipated number of civilians being killed must be proportional, proportional to the value of the military target. Now, have you ever heard anything as subjective as that? But that's the law. That's all that proportionality means under international law, that uh, when you go after a military target, knowing you're going to get civilians, the number of civilians you anticipate, not the number that are actually killed, but the number you anticipate being collateral damage, being killed or injured, must be proportional to the value of the military target example. If there is one Hamas terrorist firing from inside a hospital, and in order to get that terrorist, you have to bomb the hospital and kill 100 people, you can't do that. The, the military target is not that valuable one person, whereas hundreds of civilians are, are very valuable. That would be disproportionate. On the other hand, if, um, if 100 terrorists are firing from inside a mosque and there are only two or three um, uh, imams or whatever in the mosque who are civilians, then it is okay to destroy the mosque, knowing you're going to be killing um, three people, three innocent civilians, in order to uh, try to get at um, dozens or hundreds of terrorists. That's the concept of proportionality. Don't let anybody mislead you and fool you into thinking that it has anything to do with the proportionate response. Um, if Hamas fires one rocket, Israel can respond by firing a thousand rockets. You're supposed to win wars. You're not supposed to tie or lose. And so the country attacked has the right to use disproportionate force against soldiers on the other side, but not against civilians. So that brings us to the next very difficult issue. What is a civilian? Again, the rules of distinction. We know what a civilian is in the traditional context of formal military state-to-state wars has to be somebody who is uh, wearing a uniform, identifies himself as a member of the military, 
is bearing arms as a military soldier or performing some other function as a, as a military soldier. And a civilian is, is somebody who's just home taking care of the kids or at work doing a job. Now, when you try to apply that in the context of Hamas, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, Hamas terrorists uh, work as bakers and, uh, 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 you know, sewage workers and uh, construction builders um, 20 hours a week or 25 hours a week. And then they put on their little green um, uh, bandanas and they murder children, rape women and kidnap civilians. So who's a civilian and, and who's a terrorist? is not as clear as it is in the concept of uh, ordinary militaries. First of all, a terrorist himself is not a military. A terrorist don't get the benefit of, of, of prisoner of war status. If you catch a terrorist, uh, you can put them on trial as criminals. And uh, if the law allows execution, you can execute them. The law of war doesn't, doesn't, prohibit, doesn't prohibit that. But what is a civilian in the real world? Uh, take Hamas, for example. There are Hamas terrorists. That, that is, there are people who actually, um, you know, fire the rockets. They're terrorists. They're the people who went to the kibbutzim um, and and murdered and slaughtered all these people. They're not civilians. Um, they're terrorists. But what about people who gave them weapons? What about people who allowed them to store weapons? in their homes? Um, what about people who provided financial support for uh, Hamas? What about people who paid the families of terrorists if the terrorists were killed, as many do? In fact, the government of the Palestinian Authority does that. It pays. It pays the families of terrorists. Uh, pay for slaves is the name of the concept. Are they civilians or are they terrorists? Well, obviously, it's a continuum. Uh, and I devised that concept about 20 years ago in, in a book I was writing. And I coined the term continuum of civilianality. It's an awkward term. Continuum of civilianality. So obviously at one end of the continuum is a three-year-old baby. There's nothing criminal about a three-year-old baby. But what about a 16-year-old person who helps load the rockets? What about a 30-year-old who contributes part of her pay for uh, Hamas? Uh, there is a there is a, a continuum. Uh, maybe it'll be clearer if we remember a famous case. You remember the movie The Accused with Jodie Foster? Um, it's based on a real case, um, a rape case in, in Rhode Island. What happened, it was a terrible situation. A woman played by Jodie Foster. Well, we'll pull out of that. So we moved on to other things. So it continues. It continues. Just looking in the comments here. I haven't really looked in there yet tonight. Anything of value? Just scrolling through, taking a look. Not in the recent comments there. Let me go over to Rumble. 
If you haven't subscribed on Rumble, please consider doing that. Open this up, check the chat. I'll just type in here. Hello, everyone. And there you go. <laughs> Epstein's lawyer. Okay. I see. There's a ticking time bomb in the Middle East right now. PDS, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, that's reference to me being muted. Oh, and I see. Pam, I'm so sorry. It says here, I, I get, I gather you lost your dog. I'm so sorry about you losing your dog. I'm so sorry. Very sorry. And hello, PDS. Hello. And hello, be lovely. Hey, Choosy, how you doing? How you doing? We're going to exile those Knights of Malta yet, man. We'll get to it. Working on it. working on it well you know what gets us to 10 to 8 doesn't it yeah quite a show interesting to you know just look at some of these comments kind of scrolling back through here I didn't really haven't looked in the chat much I can say this, I'm dedicated to truth. I am. Unfortunately, especially during times of war, truth kind of goes out the window and people pick sides. People pick sides. Here, somebody wants the rumble link. I'll give you the rumble link right here. Go. there's the rumble link in the chat and so you know that's why I'm so grateful to Marta for coming on tonight to share her information with us on the Holodomor the great famine and what happened You know, I'm what I'm talking about here, what I spent time talking about here tonight was what happened to the people of Ukraine. To the people of Ukraine. Who have suffered over and over and over again. I gave you the list of different countries that stomped all over Ukraine over time. And it's very difficult to talk about anything related to Ukraine right now because there's a the war going on over there. But that's what happened to the people. Some people don't want to acknowledge it. They deny it because they're on the other side. 
or a side on Russia's side. I guess they feel that they can't say anything even sympathetic. Can't even acknowledge that something like that happened. Because what? It diminishes a chance for a Russian victory or something. I want peace. That's all I want. I just want peace. You're never going to get it. Not lasting peace. Unless you have truth. It happened. It happened. And the history there is complicated. Yeah, I, I, there are Nazis in Ukraine. It doesn't mean all the people are Nazis. And it doesn't mean all the people there are guilty of any kind of a war crime. Not the people. And I'm not justifying any war crimes committed by anyone on any side. And I will seek truth no matter what. I don't care which side we're looking at. I'm a journalist. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not a propagandist. I'm not, not on anybody's payroll. I call it like I see it. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with that, that lady. Got to be 20 years ago now. Sorry. That was pretty hard, brutal truth that she shared with me. It was a long time ago. And what happened to her was even longer ago. It's truth. It's disrespectful to just call somebody a liar. when they're sharing something so horrific. It's my job to give you the facts, to give you the truth as best I can. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not here to make friends. If I can make friends along the way, that's great. You want to deny the truth? Yeah, that's your, your business. You want to just believe something else? That you're, that's your right. You want to say something completely different? That's your right, too. I don't have any personal stake in it any more than any other human being on the planet. I got no, no personal stake in this, other than any more than any of you. I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not Russian. I'm not an Israeli. I'm not Jew. I'm not a Palestinian. I'm just a guy who grew up during a great time in Canada. And I was incredibly lucky. 
Man, was I lucky. You know, I so want it back. Not for me. For you, for the kids coming up. For my kids, so that they can have kids and have great times too. No, I'm not, I'm never going to get there if I sit here and just nod in agreement when I know damn well what happened. When I know from personal, first-hand accounts from people who shared them with me what happened. I know. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just true. Yeah, it formed my worldview, had a big impact on me, those stories. But man, that came right from the victims, the survivors themselves. Not that I've had a lot of contact with survivors of that horror, but some, enough to have conversations. It happened. It happened. Some people didn't want to hear it tonight. It's not about who's right or wrong in this war. It's just about the truth, man. It's just about the truth. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.